song you just heard is Dog of War by the Hell Yeah Babies, which means I'm Nick Bond. I'm David Gibb. And this is how wrestling explains the world. Exciting episode today. Oh, 100%. I, uh, I agree with you. This is one that I've been looking forward to a lot since we started the show. It's a subject that's very near and dear to my heart, as we discussed last week. Mystery, or mystery novels, not quite detective fiction, or am I... Am I misspeaking is it actual detective fiction we'll be talking about or just the broader idea of mystery fiction i think we can say just broader uh mystery fiction generally yeah which is something we talked about in the context of last week's episode the ladder match the main crux of most mysteries is figuring out who did it and how they did it in the same way that the point of a ladder match in terms of a narrative structure is to figure out who's going to win the match and what they're going to do at the end of the match to win it. Both a mystery and a ladder match have a solution and how that solution will be arrived at is generally, you know, that it's a puzzle in some way. You they, you know, you're made to guess along the way. There's dramatic twists and turns. There's different points where you're, you know, things are really pointing a certain direction, but then there's a dramatic reversal back and forth. So yeah, I think that uh, ladder matches really do hit a lot of the same beats as mysteries. And I think the important distinction is something you mentioned. Mystery fiction is a puzzle. It is not a mystery. Mysteries cannot be solved by gathering all the information, more or less, where puzzles, the second you have all the information, you can literally puzzle the pieces together. Yeah, and it kind of depends because I think that there's... There's sort of some mystery fiction out there that cheats. Like there's the distinction of what I've heard called an honest mystery. When you read a quote unquote honest mystery, you figure out what's going on or you should figure out what's going on either at the exact same time as the protagonist, the investigator, seconds before or seconds after them, where you have all the same information they do and you process things and understand the world in the same way and can arrive at the same conclusions. That's an honest mystery. And I think that's really what you're describing. Whereas sometimes when you have a genius character like a Sherlock Holmes, sometimes there's some cheating involved. Or like sometimes in a mystery story, you know, someone has a previously unmentioned sibling who turns out to be an identical twin. That turns out at the end of the story, you know, <laughs> to suddenly be a very important plot point. You know what I mean? So, and that would be kind of a, a dishonest or a, a cheating mystery. So there's definitely both out there in the world of fiction. And I know that. As a mystery writer myself, I really strive to keep it honest, you know, because I think that part of the reason that people enjoy mysteries is because they they want to try to figure it out itself themselves and they either want the satisfaction of having been right at the end or they want to be proven wrong in a satisfying way where it's even more complex or intricate or interesting than they really, you know, expected or appreciated on the first read. And then ideally they either want to read your next story or they want to go back and read that one again. And I think some of that is also a function of people not wanting to feel like they've been purposely fooled for the sake of being fooled, which is something that reminds me of the NWO and the way that everybody turned on everybody and there was no larger plan for the NWO. It was just a bunch of guys throwing shit at the wall <laughs> and hoping something would stick. Yeah, I thought a great example of that was the the uh, where they were doing is Sting a babyface, is Sting a heel, Crow, Sting, and they had the fake Sting. And so the, you know, Sting did all these low-down, dirty things, and they were saying, oh my god, Sting's in the NWO. Like, the announcers were saying it, you know, oh, it's, it's all over, Sting's joined the NWO, we know it. We're all, we're all dead, whatever. And then it just turned out, no, 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 that wasn't Sting at all in the NWO, actually. They just got a guy and dressed him up as Sting, and he acted as Sting. I always thought that that was a great example of they made it, they presented it as, as if you were supposed to think and feel a certain way. I guess it's the difference between a, 
a reversal and a swerve to some degree. In a reversal, it's unexpected and it really changes the course of things. But at the same time, it's it still plays within the reality of the rest of the story. Whereas a swerve, kind of by definition, or in my opinion, that bends reality or bends the way things should have gone. One of the reasons I was extremely excited, not just your expertise, but this fact that we would get to bring up or it's not a fact i guess it's a theory of how to tell a story in wrestling it's the jim Cornette i've never been to canada theory which when he talked about vince russo his problem with vince russo was that vince russo wouldn't think of all of the pieces that he was putting together and would just have a random swerve at the end and and the way jim Cornette described it this is one of the reasons i love it he said if you create a story that's built around me fucking a goat in Canada, you better make sure I've actually been to Canada or the whole thing won't work. And that's what you saw with something like the NWO. They never even hinted or looked like they built into the structure of the story, the fact that Sting was fake. It seems like they thought they were going to do something with Sting and were like, actually, fuck it. Let's just pretend that Sting was fake. Yeah, with NWO Sting, I think it's one of the kind of many wrestling appearances of the kind of uh, fuck you for caring reversal. That it's not just a reversal that's part of the ride or it's not really to, you know, change the stakes or, or add depth to the story. That it's really just like, we manipulated you, we took you this direction and you're dumb for going that way. And uh, it's just like a fart in your face. Like the baby thing, you know, Sting never grabbed Jeff Farmer and just pounded the tar out of him and beat him from pillar to post. And Jeff Farmer didn't bleed everywhere and get dragged out on a stretcher ne never to be seen again. That didn't happen. We didn't really get that moment. I think that's sort of the, gets to the heart of how wrestling bookers are like mystery writers is that it's a genre with a pretty wide berth. I think if someone is a fan of a mystery, they're willing to go along for the ride and play by a certain set of rules and expect the unexpected much in the same way, you know, that an invested wrestling fan does. Um, but you definitely have to get the big payoffs right most of the time. If you get the big payoffs right most of the time, people will ignore a lot of the detail work. All the great mystery writers pushed a lot of pretty hack stuff out of there at various points in their career. I kind of joke about being sensitive of, about being called a hack as a mystery writer because it's a bit of a hacks genre because it, it's a genre which much like professional wrestling, like I said, has this very wide berth and is very forgiving. And some people misinterpret it as being all about the reversals. But I, I think the good mystery writer and the good wrestling booker have to kind of balance the overarching arc with the little interesting things that happen along the way. No good mystery novel, there are short stories that are very focused, but no good mystery novel is just about who did it. It's about the investigation and it's about the lives of the people who are being investigated and structuring a wrestling promotion, in my mind, should be the same way. That it's about the titles, of course. It's about the championship chases, of course. But it's also about what each individual person who you're investing TV time in is doing. And each of those individual journeys and all the detail work there. And it all comes together that way. You brought up uh, in planning this episode, the mystery affair at Styles, which is, in looking through, because again, I'm not a reader, uh, is basically considered one of the foundational texts of detective and mystery fiction, as far as I could tell. Is that an accurate assessment of how important or significant or 
popular it was? It's the first Hercule Poirot novel. So it was Christie Christie's first novel with her, I should say Dame Agatha Christie, uh, the famous sort of a uh, English uh, mystery writer of the early to mid uh, 20th century. Uh, it was her first novel with her most famous and most profitable character. And um, it, it actually kind of changed the game in that, you know, mystery fiction, or at least the modern version of mystery fiction was still pretty new at the time. And Mysterious Affair at Styles literally introduced a plot device, which like now we take for granted. Uh, it's such a wrestling parallel, it's great. She used a plot device that now we take for granted that no one had ever seen before at the time. So it was like the first time someone saw a moonsault. <laughs> and what was that trope, I guess? Is that the best way to put it? or just Sure, sure, yeah, absolutely. You could call it a trope, definitely. So in The Mysterious Affair at Styles, um, a, a woman is murdered, and it, it's, it, it seems transparent that, that her husband, who is uh, a, a sort of transparently evil guy, um, also kind of a, an offensive Jewish stereotype <laughs> reading the book uh, now. Uh, but uh, her husband, who is a transparently bad guy, seems to be the guilty party, but he also has an airtight alibi. Uh, so it seems that it, it must be him, but it can't be him. And then at the end of the story, it's revealed that he was having an affair with the wife's best friend, who has seemed like a total baby face the whole, the whole story, who wants to help the detectives get the evil husband. But it turns out that they are secretly a couple and that they did it together. And that has been subsequently used in like so many other, not just like, first of all, Christy went on to use it like a dozen more times in her other novels and short stories. But it's become like a very, very commonplace finish, so to speak, in a mystery that, that there's a, the, the, the mystery, the author uh, misdirects you and causes you to look at a certain couple in the story, but really there's this secret other couple, and the crux of the mystery really is the intentions of the secret other couple. And I guess, just to parse for, for everybody, what is the difference between that and what you believe to be a reversal style, like a, a what we were talking about earlier, that kind of fuck you for caring twist. Is it that they do a thorough job of actually explaining without explaining how that thing could have come to be? Or is it just they do it with a flourish that you don't mind? It's the perfect example of the Conan Doyle payoff. So we're talking about a Christie story, but I'm going to crib a line from Sherlock Holmes here. And that's like Sherlock Holmes famously says, right? They're like, uh, when you eliminate everything that you know must be impossible, whatever remains, no matter how improbable, must be the solution. And that's why Mysterious Ferret Styles really works, because nobody being guilty makes sense. They either don't have the motive or they don't have the opportunity. But if that one character and that one character who are supposed to despise each other are actually secretly working together, that's the one possible combination that makes everything make sense. Can you pull, just for an example for the people again, uh, of a wrestling storyline that kind of follows this basic idea? Well, I guess one that we've already talked about in the past pretty extensively, actually, so I'll point people to the archives, as is my want, uh, would be Bash at the Beach, the Hulk Hogan turn. I mean, we talked about how some of the NWO stuff was kind of cheating, but I thought the Hulk Hogan turn was very similar to uh, Mysterious Affair at Styles in that, you know, they're talking about the third man, the implication is that it's somebody else from New York, uh, and it's somebody who's, you know, gonna, they're, they're gonna take out WCW because they hate WCW and they're specifically gonna target the macho man. And you think of all that and the, who was the one person that you weren't thinking about who fit all those descriptions? Like 
who was from New York, who, you know, could, could conceivably be portrayed as hating WCW and who had, you know, existing beef with the macho man and who would be on the side of Vince McMahon's mission to, to bring down WCW or whatever. And it's like the one person who you weren't supposed to think about was in fact Hulk Hogan. And that's part of why that turn worked. He met all the characteristics that the guilty party, you know, that the, that the villain was supposed to have, but he was kind of flying under the radar. So it was that same moment of like the one eventuality that makes sense is the one that you were set up not to think about. And what I think is interesting in particular with that example, now that you mention it, is that they had hinted previously at the idea that Hulk Hogan was turning into a worse person than he had been previously. OSW Review did a really good job with this during the uncensored story arc. They kind of explain that he was there were plant really planting seeds throughout that he had at the very least become embittered by what was happening in the w in wcw even before kevin nash and scott hall were twinkles in eric bischoff's eye no definitely and i think another great example so osw of course that's a fantastic example of uh, of you know fans doing it after the fact but I remember when Bully Ray turned in TNA and revealed himself to be the leaders of Aces, leader of Aces and Eights, they actually did a tremendous video where they combed back through the last like three or four or five months of TV and pointed out like they pulled up and made a highlight reel of every crumb they had dropped. And when you looked at the highlight reel of every crumb they had dropped, it was like, well, of course he was a villain all along. And I think a good mystery is like that, where like if you wrote out the bullet points, like maybe it would be obvious, but the journey getting there you know, can contain so many diversions or red herrings or twists and turns that, you know, that, that, that you can take something that the summary of which is very obvious and make it something that's not obvious at all. Succeeding at doing that is really important for establishing trust, which I think is something you see with the WWE, that they are just recently started to regain people's trust as a company that can follow through on a good storyline that they've built up. I'm not saying they're at the place where everybody's like, it's totally fine. They're nowhere near, say, Kenny Omega at the moment uh, in Okada. But they have kind of, after really losing it in the way that the NWO did, where it was just like, you gave us this great great, great, great turn. This great puzzle that you put together in front of us right before our eyes we didn't see coming. And then you use that trust to kind of break our hearts, not even break our hearts, but just make us not care. And I think what you learn is that you can't keep going back to the well over and over again. And I also think it goes back to the never been to Canada idea that you kind of end up Using something like, uh, for instance, uh, Sherlock Holmes, where you mentioned last week when we were talking about it, The Adventure of the Creeping Man. <laughs> yes, regarded as one of the worst Sherlock Holmes stories. Absolutely. I actually, I had read the synopsis and I asked Dave, so wait, the old man just wants to get boner pills and it turns him into a monkey? And your response was, yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, 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 one of the reasons that it's considered so bad is because it doesn't adhere to the rules of reality the way all the other stories do. Like there is this science fiction element that is just presented as fact. But I mean, it's also kind of funny because uh, I don't, Conan Doyle was very uh, quick to believe things. Like Conan Doyle believed in like elves and fairies in the woods and he was famously taken in by a, a number of fraudulent photographs. I don't remember the exact name of it, but it was a famous case where, you know, 
He authenticated that these were real pictures of fairies, and then it later turned out that they were frauds. He, you know, he was a, he was very much part of that like uh, Victorian Edwardian movement where you know there was a big belief in like spiritualism and seances and, and and things of that nature. So he was kind of a credulous guy, and he definitely allowed that to sneak into his. Uh, his fiction, like there's a lot, there, there's people being hypnotized or uh, there's people being mind washed uh, by, or sorry, brainwashed by, by evil Chinese people in opium dens. There, there is this sort of like pseudoscience that creeps into Conan Doyle's work and Creeping Man is uh, kind of the best example of that. That was later in his career too. So the people had been led to believe for decades Sherlock Holmes existed more or less within the bounds of reality. And then here you go kind of straight into science fiction and people are like, no, you, you lost me when the guy got turned into a monkey and then torn apart by his own dog who he had abused earlier in the story. You lost me. There's that style of messed up payoff. We were just like, this doesn't make any sense. The, I've never been to Canada. What are you doing? And then there's the Starcade 97 failed payoff where it's them not caring about what happens that they kind of just give out on making an effort to finish off in a way that is satisfying for the reader or the viewer uh, for those that don't know starcade 97 was a match that the main event of which was a match that had been built to for a year between hulk hogan and the aforementioned sting and it ends <laughs> The well, original ending of the match is it's supposed to be Nick Patrick doing a fast count on Hogan for Hogan on Sting. And then Bret Hart comes out as someone who had just been involved in the Montreal Screwjob and is basically like, no, not like this. And it wasn't a matter of them not having a good idea. Like that idea is a little convoluted, but it's a decent idea as long as you execute the thing correctly, which is the fast count. Dave? Uh, did they execute the fast count correctly? Uh, no, I, I believe shortly before the match, Hulk Hogan found Nick Patrick in the back and suggested that maybe they shouldn't do the fast count after all. <laughs> and that's what happens when people don't give a shit about the story they're telling and they're just looking to either make money, which it seems like it happens a lot in mystery fiction, or they end up just not caring about the artistic integrity of what they're doing, which is a completely different thing. And that's basically what was happening with Hogan is he didn't give a shit about the artistic integrity and he just wanted to make money. Yeah. That's kind of what I was saying earlier with, uh, with saying that mysteries were kind of a hacks genre. And I think that wrestling is the same where, uh, you know, you can very, very easily find yourself tripping down that road, uh, you know, without really realizing it. And it's really happened even to the best. I mean, if you think about like Dashiell Hammett, if you think about Agatha Christie, you know, all the kind of big famous mystery authors, uh, at some point were definitely prone to pushing out somewhat substandard work. Uh, especially in times when money was needed. It's kind of like uh, hot-shotting in wrestling, you know, the, the, the when, the, when, the, the when the booker's feeling the heat or when the promotion's feeling the heat, you just try to put something out there. Agatha Christie, she uh, she was going through a divorce and she, had, she, she possibly had kind of like a fugue state episode and disappeared for a few days. There's an awesome uh, drunk history episode about it. But she disappeared for a few days and then when she reappeared, uh, they suddenly instantly, like two weeks later, published a novel. And what she had done is like she had she and her brother-in-law had like strung together a bunch of short stories that she had previously written in like a very flimsy way and you know gotten them published very quickly to to take advantage of of her being kind of in the gossip sheets for her divorce and for her 
for her uh, disappearance and everything like that. And then the novel was called The Big Four, and it's it's considered just her worst novel by far. The long-running uh, David Suchet uh, English Poirot TV series, when they finally wrapped up a couple of years ago after, after doing every single novel, they, that was one of the ones they did in the final season because they've been putting it off for so long. And they literally just scrapped the, the narrative of the, the novel almost completely and just like rewrote a tangential story with a lot of the same character names. <laughs> that's, that's kind of wonderful. Just like, we can't do anything with this. <laughs> Even the series that like in its later years became very devoted to being faithful to the source material, just immediately like, threw it out for that one. And they're like, no, that novel's fucking terrible. Here's what we think <laughs> she should have written. So, so, so definitely, yeah, mystery is a genre where there are, where even the great ones have some work that they uh, pushed out on there, pushed out there on, you know, a, uh, a low day. Mystery writers have a tendency to hate their main characters, right? They kind of get bored of them. Yeah, I mean, if you think of the kind of original super huge mystery detective, if you think of Sherlock Holmes, I mean, his creator, Conan Doyle, uh, really, really hated him <laughs> or seems to definitely. I mean, he killed Sherlock Holmes off for 10 years from, I think it was like 1893 to 1903 or whatever. You know, he, he literally had him fall off a cliff to his death and disappear. And he really, once again, only brought him back when uh, the public outcry became such that it really distracted from any other work that he wanted to publish. Like, nobody was interested in other stuff that he was doing. They, they wanted to hear more about Sherlock Holmes. And every interview about his new book became an interview about whatever happened to Sherlock Holmes. So that character really much like many wrestling characters do, right, ultimately kind of felt like it belonged to the fans more than it belonged to the creator. And and like, uh, same with Agatha Christie, she really hated Poirot. And, and after World War II, as she, you know, uh, got a little later in her career, she tried to write fewer and fewer Poirot stories and focus on uh, Miss Marple. She she created a, a detective who was more like her, you know, who was a woman who was, who was getting older as opposed to, you know, Poirot, who's like this... Uh, just very stereotypically arrogant male character. Just because the character you created gets over big doesn't necessarily mean they're the one you want, right? It's like the Vince McMahon problem with Daniel Bryan. It's like the, the, the person who got over and who made you all this money and who the people really want to see and who the people really think they have a connection to. That's not necessarily the stuff that you want to be putting out there. And, and that struggle is real for mystery writers or a lot of them who get very successful in the way it really has been for Vince McMahon the last few yeah, years. Yeah, they get in, in, like imbued or informed by the fans' love for them. It's it's kind of, and I don't think this is a coincidence, it's kind of the way that when people talk about Batman, they bring up prep time Batman. People who validate themselves through the things they like end up seeing Sherlock Holmes, who's a terrible person, as an aspirational figure. And then they attach themselves to that. And obviously it's different when they say Daniel Bryan, because they get attached to the idea of the character even more so than the character itself. It's the projection. I mean, it's the same one, you know, one show that I was thinking about earlier today, a lot kind of while I was prepping to do this episode is it was never framed as a mystery. It was kind of framed as a medical drama, but it was really structured like a mystery. And that's House with Hugh Laurie. And I mean, it's the same with House, right? Like House is an insufferable person who's, who has so many more flaws than any real human being actually, you know, conceivably could. And keep a job, no matter how talented Exactly, and he's insufferable because he's always right, just like Sherlock Holmes. Like, that kind of person in real life would not be cool or aspirational. That kind of person would be obnoxious. When you read uh, the original Sherlock Holmes stories, which are narrated uh, all but 
one or two of them, uh, are all narrated by Dr. Watson, who's supposed to be like an everyman narrator who we, the reader, can actually relate to. The the verbs that, that Watson uses kind of shows that like Holmes is not a real person. He's a freak. Like he's never just impressed by Holmes. He marvels at Holmes. Like I marvel. That's a verb that Conan Doyle uses a lot. It's like he's looking at something that isn't human, that's not right. He's He's a, he's a true genius in that, you know, he's just as far from the norm as someone who would be considered like an unacceptable madman. And it's almost like the, the horseshoe diagram there. Like Holmes is very much supposed to be that character. Or once again, same with Hercule Poirot. He's the same kind of character where, you know, he is portrayed, even though I don't know there's necessarily a vocabulary for it at the time, he's portrayed as having really problematic OCD. Like he's literally uh, constantly rearranging things and his eggs all need to be exactly the same size or he won't eat them. And, you know, he's uh, he's obsessed. Like a monk. Exactly. Like, not monk. Exactly. Not monk as an, in a monastery. Monk as an Adrian monk yeah, from Tony the show. Monk. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, Tony Shalhoub. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Monk was very much that was taken from, or I would assume kind of borrowed from Poirot. And Poirot's, you know, also obsessed with his grooming and his clothes and everything. But, like, these are the traits of an obnoxious person. Like you said, not an aspirational figure. And these people are kind of portrayed not as aspirational characters, but as freaks. It's like the police don't want to go to the private detector detective in a mystery story, do they? It's always like they are always half resentful that they have to consult with this outside person who's just impossibly brilliant because it's like they exist on this other plane, which everybody else is super self-conscious of. No, there's nothing like nice or friendly or fun about it. Like these are like very icy almost sociopathic characters which is why you can understand why they would be like i don't want to write this i don't want to write superman if superman has no redeeming qualities other than the fact that he has superpower yeah that's i mean that's like i think why christy you know backed away from poirot she's like why would i want to write about this guy who knows everything about psychology he knows everything about poison he's an expert on different shades of ladies makeup and things like that you know what i mean or sherlock holmes who's supposed to be the the author of a treatise on cigarette ash or cigar ash i think it is that's just like so obnoxious. And then, you know, Christy in response to that, like I said earlier, ultimately later in her career, she tried to focus on writing for a character who was more like her, a, a person who, uh, like the Miss Marple, who drew things out from people sort of by uh, by enticing them with conversation, sort of in a, the, the stereotype is that she's like a gossipy old lady or whatever. But she, she moved on later in her career and she said, let's leave out all the stuff about being a genius. Like, let's think more about the actual tools that a real person who was kind of operating on a slightly different level might use to solve problems that other people could. Yeah, and I think what the, it's funny you keep mentioning people and I'm like, oh, that reminds me of uh, Jessica Fletcher on A Murder, She Wrote that's the very similar she's not a genius she's just a mystery writer who's really good at understanding how mysteries work and being able to figure out the ways in which criminals work without being a super psychologist she's just an exceptionally good mystery writer yeah and and jessica fletcher is always paying attention she's detail oriented that's another quality that like the more humanistic uh, detective characters usually have. It's not necessarily that they're exceptionally smart or exceptionally brilliant. It's that they're exceptionally observant mm -hmm. and that they're present in the moment. They're someone who makes connections between what they're seeing right now and what they've already heard. And I think that is something that ends up happening with the modern interpretation of Sherlock. 
I mean, he's obviously on the show, and I'm talking about the BBC version. Uh, mm-hmm. Benedict Cumberbatch. Yeah, yeah, a superhero. But at the same time, he doesn't necessarily do th- – because – and part of it is the internet. The internet made it so that that superpower isn't that impressive. You can just look shit up and be like, oh, this lady's makeup, it doesn't match these things. I'll just go to their fucking website. So he had to be more observant. Like the first time he interacts with Watson – How do you feel about the violin? Sorry, what? I play the violin when I'm thinking. Sometimes I don't talk for days on. And would that bother you? Potential flatmates should know the worst about each other. But you, you told him about me. Not a word. Then who said anything about flatmates? I did. I told Mike this morning that I must be a difficult man to find a flatmate for. Now here he is, just after lunch with an old friend, clearly just home from military service in Afghanistan. Wasn't that difficult leap? They actually, for at least the first two seasons, humanize him in a way that you don't, I would assume you don't really see in the novels. No, he's certainly not. I mean, the only thing that really humanizes him in the stories, in the written stories, is that he doesn't take care of himself. Like Watson, who is a doctor, always remarks on that, like, when Holmes falls into depressions, he doesn't eat and he intravenously uses cocaine. So he has these weaknesses that tell you that he's like, broken but they more exist to kind of show you again how far he is from the norm they're not really to humanize him they're kind of to make him even more of a freak that's always kind of how i've read them yeah and in the in the television show he loves watson has genuine affection for watson that I, i again i don't know is that the case in the books or does he just kind of see watson as a means to an end in terms of keeping him alive and a uh, in within the bounds of normal society. I think he appreciates Watson as a sounding board who thinks how a normal person thinks, and that's kind of problematic and condescending in his own way. But I certainly think there is, like, affection between them. I think that they're, you know, like, when they meet in the in the books, and I think I, I've seen the first season or two of the Benedict Cumberbatch show, and I think they, they, they portrayed about the same, is they're kind of two guys who who need each other in that moment. It's like the classic buddy yes. cop like thing that it's like, you know, Watson has just come back from Afghanistan. He's gambled away his injury pension. Um, he's been drinking too much and he's effectively homeless, just like living in cheap hotels, uh, you know, down by the Thames. Uh, and Holmes, meanwhile, uh, everybody refuses to live with him because he's just impossible to deal with and nobody really understands him. And he's always just in the chemistry lab, you know, blowing himself up or whatever, and and nobody gets it. Uh, So they really are two people who need each other when they meet. And I think whether it's a movie, like even a comedy movie, like uh, what's the movie with Mark Wahlberg and Will Ferrell, Regular Guys? Uh, Uh, The Other Guys. Like even a movie like that, it's so much a part of the kind of like mystery or crime story piece that like, the, the, the two main characters, even if one of them is freakishly competent and the other one is only average, they tend to like meet at a time where they really need each other. And they usually have complementary skills that, like I said, it, part of what Sherlock loves about Watson is that Watson basically keeps him alive. <laughs> he like, he, especially in the show, since Watson is, again... Is Watson like as a smart or is he just very much an everyday person? Because I feel like in the television show, he is a very, very, very smart person who's not as smart as Holmes. Yeah, I mean, he's a he's a medical doctor and he's certainly portrayed as a very brave veteran as well. Like he's 
I'm not sure if he's supposed to be the lone survivor, but he's like one of the very few survivors of his regimen uh, in the books and stuff. So he's clearly supposed to be like very brave, very valorous, and definitely like very smart. And and he has better people skills than Holmes too. Like he is. Yes. Um, he That's is a huge more, part. He's yeah. much more emotionally intelligent. Like Holmes sometimes has. I mean, it's it's a patronizing turn of the century thing that's written in the book. But Holmes is not as effective as communicating with women. And so Watson like sits down with them and, and holds their hand and passes them his handkerchief as they start to cry and stuff. And it's all patronizing gendered stuff that, that you know, we don't do anymore. But, but within the context of the book, it's supposed to show that Watson has an emotional intelligence that is complementary, you know, to, to Holmes just freakish polymathic intelligence. Yeah, and I think that's why they lasted so long or have value still. Not just as entertainment properties, but as intellectual ideas. Again, not necessarily aspirational, but you can look at them and go, I totally get why you would remake or reboot or recreate or adapt those stories to a modern context in a way that I'm not even going to pronounce the dude's name right. Poirot? Is that correct? Poirot. Yeah, Poirot. Poirot. He doesn't seem to have the resonance well they are i mean they they did just do the murder on the orient express movie with uh with kenneth branagh and i know that they're under they're under agreement to do i think two more poirot movies in the next two or three years and bbc is relaunching a new series uh because they wrapped up the david suchet one like i said they did all the novels uh they turned them all into i think they they vary from like 90 minute to two hour teleplays basically but, uh, but but I, I think that Poirot is a little more fundamentally British, maybe. Um, Poirot is very much about England between World War I and World War II, especially... The interwar period, yeah. Yeah, Poirot is very much about the kind of interwar period in England, uh, going right you know through maybe the mid-19-teens, uh, um, through the end of the 40s, really. And it's a lot about... The British experience, both with the war and the, the roles people had to take on during these different wartime periods and, and how it kind of shook up the lives of several different generations of people. And Poirot is also very much about the way the interpretation or the definition of Englishness or Britishness was at least kind of starting to grow in the mid 20th century that like there's uh, Poirot is constantly running into xenophobia in the books. He's, he's constantly dismissed for being a foreigner. And that's the word they use. It's like, you know, gaijin in Japanese. It, it's a, foreigner is a dirty word to English people of my grandparents' generation very much. You know, but, but he, is, he is, you know, constantly running into xenophobia. And, you know, he is constantly being referred to as being French, even though he constantly corrects people that he is Belgian. And no one ever uh, learns to pronounce his name. So he's constantly <laughs> running into He's no, 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 no. It's a feature of the books is that he had, it's a feature of the characters that his name is difficult for English speaking people to pronounce. That makes me feel slightly um, better. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So, so, so I think that Poirot is very, is more resonant to the English experience. Whereas Sherlock Holmes is kind of like a seminal genre work that uh, transcends its own setting. The Sherlock Holmes movies are literally called Sherlock Holmes or, or Sherlock Holmes and Game of Shadows. Poirot. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, the Poirot movie is 
Murder on the Orient Express. It's not a movie framed as a movie about him. It's not sold as a movie about him. And I think what you're talking about is essentially the difference between, I want to say, like a Bruno San Martino and a Hulk Hogan. Sure. That's a really interesting, that's a really interesting comparison, definitely. Or I would even say like a... uh a superstar Billy Graham and a Hogan. People who know wrestling know superstar Billy Graham in a way that everyone, as, as Arn Anderson famously said, wrestling is what, to most people is what Hulk Hogan does. When you think of the quintessential detective, you think of Sherlock Holmes. Oh yeah, when you say, you know, what are two physical objects that you associate with mystery fiction? Uh, people would say a deerstalker cap and a calabash pipe. And most people don't even know what a deerstalker cap and a calabash pipe are, but you can pick the pictures up. They will literally call it the, yeah, Sherlock Holmes hat. That's what they- And a Sherlock Holmes pipe, even though there's no references to him using either a calabash pipe or a deerstalker cap in the books. Uh, I think that's because of the Basil Rathbone movies, which were super popular in the mid-century. Yeah, mystery is the thing that Sherlock Holmes does, no question. And and you look at this, and you have two very transcendent, long-lasting figures uh, that didn't get usurped by the modern detect televised detective fiction. Uh, and then you have someone like, and I love this analogy you mentioned to me, Mike Hammer. And Lex Luger? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, sure. So uh, Mike Hammer and Lex Luger, yeah, I, the reason I kind of equated them is, is I guess that they're, you know, they're, there's this kind of rebirth of Lex Luger over the past two years that I that I don't want to step on. An ironic rebirth of Lex Luger. Not in the, though I will say WCW actually figured out a way to use Lex Luger in a way uh, a context that was interesting and illuminated his character. But if you look at like Lex Luger's time before WWE and then into WWE, there's this character, there's this idea that he will just be able to get over on looks alone. And it didn't necessarily work then though. It was relatively po- relatively popular. But if you look back, you're like, he's terrible. No, he's not good. Exactly. And it's the same with, with Mike Hammer, who is a detective character created by Mickey Spillane. Uh, it, it, during kind of the golden era of, you know, of noir style detection, detective fiction, in, in much the same way that Lex Luger was the wrestler of the era when he broke in, you know, the big kind of muscled up, bleach blonde, long, feathery hair, little tight, little speedo. You know, he was very much the wrestler of his time. And Mike Hammer was supposed to be the tough guy at this time. You know, he called ladies broads and he was real steely eyed and he couldn't get a cup of coffee without getting into a fight with someone to prove what a big man he was. And at the time, the novels sold like hotcakes. And, 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 you know, Mickey Spillane did very, very well financially, both both off of the books and movies and stuff like that. I mean, he had been, I believe Mickey Spillane had been a, like a, a failed comic book writer or something like that, or a less successful comic book writer. And when he started writing these Mike Hammer books, uh, he like really broke out and did really, really well. But like when you talk about detective fiction today, it's like Mike Hammer isn't really in the discussion unless you're talking about how problematic they are. Yeah, I had no clue who he was other than I think there's a, t- again, my I see everything through the lens of detective fiction on television. Um, I think there was a Mike Hammer television show. Like in the back of my head, I remember one. It was my lucky day. So I thought. The Knicks were heading for the playoffs. The dolls were in full blossom along Fifth Avenue. And some of the cards were even going into the hat. But right then I couldn't care less. I was sort of in between and going nuts from the boredom. 
I should have enjoyed it while I could. Mike, it's for you. It's Johnny Roman again. Hey, Johnny, the answer's still no. Hey, Mikey. Let me see if I can change your mind. I'm busy, John. I'm very busy. Look, I don't do palimony cases. I don't work Las Vegas. Come on, Hammer. Hey, I'm Johnny Roman. Nobody says no to Johnny Roman. I'll tell you what. You forget that other offer. I'm going to give you... Hello? 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 Lola, what's with the phone? Would you mind staying off the line? I'm interfacing. Who are you? This is Michael. You remember my nephew. He's helping us set up our new computer. He's very smart. A computer can do everything a secretary can do. Everything? Mike, he's only 12. Women won't have to be secretaries anymore. They can go into electronics. I'll make a note. But I had no clue that was an actual detective series. Yeah, definitely. A very long-running one. I mean, he, yeah, he, he did kind of all the stereotypical manly man mid-century stuff that hasn't aged well, like, you know, just fighting people without asking and, and slapping women across the face to make them talk sense at key moments and things like that. So just just not good stuff that hasn't aged well. And and yeah, I, I, you know, but, but, but he made the commitment to it, much like Lex Luger did, you know. You just know something's working in the moment, so you don't question it. You make the money. And if it ages poorly, I guess who cares? You've still got the money, right? And the reason you see that in both wrestling and, and all of this, all of the constantly pushing baby faces, even though you may hate them or not care about them, the uh, doing something in the con- in the context of a moment that you know will age poorly is because there's not the expectations of high fic- highbrow fic- uh, fiction and literature that you have with Jane Austen? No, certainly. It's kind of a, like I said before, it, it can be considered a hacks genre. A lot of the people in mystery writing are are carnies to some degree, certainly. Castle is a show about mystery shows, telling a story within a given frame with the idea that you're just going to produce any, as much of these as possible. And that's similar to what you see in wrestling. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think if you think of some of the big TV properties out there over the last 20 years, like whether it's Law and Order, whether it's CSI, uh, you know, whether it is, yeah, like Castle or Bones or, or any, or NCIS or any of those like primetime huge hit detective shows, it very much like all these mystery authors, it's like, once you get over, once you ha- once you break through with either you know a character, a detective who people connect with, or a setting or a style that people with connect you connect with, the idea is to get as much of it out there as possible. And if you think of you know how long the original format of CSI ran, or how long Law and Order, Law and Order SVU has run, it's really incredible. Like I said, I guess it just speaks to the genre working. I mean, that's really what genre fiction is. Genre fiction is is when you have a space and a toolkit and a set of rules that works basically. And you can say like all these things share this same structure that works. And maybe that's why, you know, some wrestlers and some bookers and some cop shows <laughs> have such long successful runs. Yeah. And you watch a show like Castle. What was great about Castle is they both played with the idea of genre fiction because Castle is kind of seen to be a James Patterson-esque, I don't want to say hack, but someone that relies on the tropes of the 
medium to get by. What makes that show great is when he, like the individual episodes that are great, because I would not say overall it is a great series in a traditional sense, but there are specific episodes that transcend that show in a real way because they break completely both with the genre they're in and with the character himself in a way that doesn't isn't a reversal it is a swerve like uh, the my favorite example my favorite episode of castle is there it's the triple killer episode and the way that it ends the way that castle gets saved because it you think it's structured in a certain way and that he oh he found the killer and then it turns out the guy that he is trying to protect he is put into police protection is actually the killer and the way he gets out of it is by telling his mother he loves her and she knows something's wrong and that like plays with the character it's a, this massive twist while on the character while having a massive twist within the larger context of the genre fiction structure and i i feel like you see that like with kenny omega where they and, and okada where they're breaking they're using the ideas of wrestling to break them and recreate them into something that extends past what wrestling is. Yeah, definitely. I think that's what's going on very much, especially with, yeah, Omega. I, the last couple of weeks, I've really put over the two-part interview that he did with Jim Ross. And I think if you if you listen back to, to that, you'll, you'll, you'll hear that that really is exactly his MO, to take what's already been established in the genre and use that to the fullest and then add his own perspective to it. It's really exciting to see someone who who isn't trying to reinvent the wheel because I think during that kind of less productive period, 2005 and, you know, 2000 and the summer of punk, let's say in between that phase, I think part of what was happening was people were either content to just do the thing like we've been saying, or we're trying to reinvent the wheel. Uh, but I think now we live in an era where we, we have, you know, folks like Kenny Omega and Cody Rhodes uh, and some of what's being done in the WWE too. I don't mean to like discount that at all. But uh, but but you have people who are who are embracing the genre, not trying to reinvent the wheel, but trying to look at it from a fresh perspective, or you know, inject new elements or recombine things in some way. Which I think really, like I was saying before, is you know, a, a genre is a toolkit of things that work. And when you work in the genre, you always have much higher chances of success than when you try to break out of the genre. Sometimes stuff that breaks through the genre is super successful, but that's really always the exception rather than the rule. Because there's real value in random episodes of Castle or Bones or Murder, She Wrote or any of these shows. Uh, Columbo's different because Columbo is a series of movies that are all pretty much exceptional. Like, I really love Columbo. Uh, and Peter Falk is, his performance is so exceptional that even if the mystery sucked, it would have been good. Columbo is almost like the inverse of Dexter. So like Columbo almost always starts with them showing you who did it. You usually learn who did it at the beginning. And it's about how they don't get away. Whereas in like Dexter, at least the perspective of Dexter as a serial killer himself, the whole story of Dexter is it's a mystery about a serial killer who keeps getting away. And the mystery is not about how they find him. It's about how he gets away. It's like the anti-Dexter. Yeah, and it's there's real value in the, the journey as opposed to the destination. It's like and the I, inverse of the traditional mystery in, in fully. I agree. That's yeah. a great point. Columbo, if you can find it, I don't I don't know where it's available online. That is some of the best, as far as I'm, Dave, you're obviously much more knowledgeable about this stuff. In terms of televised detective fiction, which I, I know a lot about, I think it's the best. 
I think it is the best encapsulation of a lot of what we're talking about, what works and what doesn't. You can That is actually like breaking the genre a little bit, but doing it in a way that puts value on the story itself, on the mystery itself. Yeah, definitely. I think that that era where you had, you've named both shows that I really associate with that era of American mystery, and that's Murder, She Wrote and Columbo. I would kind of mention those two series, you know, in the same breath. And I think that that was really the origin of the kind of modern, honest American televised detective story. Not so much a police procedural, you know what I mean, but in terms of like a just a detective story and the way they function, the way they're about, you know, having intimate conversations with people and drawing them out and having them tell you like that's that's what like Hercule Poirot, that's like one of his skills in those in in the, in the Agatha Christie stories is that like you know, people suddenly, for whatever reason, he has a quality that people suddenly pour out their whole life to him. And I think that, you know, both Columbo and, uh, and uh, Jessica Fletcher in uh, Murder, She Wrote, they, uh, they both kind of brought that quality to the American detective screen. Because if you really look at like the, you know, American detective fiction, really it's golden era or it's origin point sort of is really that kind of like noir period you know, of, of it's not really necessarily about the mystery. It's about the misadventure that the investigator is on trying to make some sense of the mystery. But I think that Jessica Fletcher and, and Columbo both kind of brought that conversational aspect of mystery to the American audience. And that's really, really crucial. And, and those are important shows for that reason to me. Yeah, and I think it's along the same. They are having conversations not just with the people in the show, but with the genre itself. They are, and, and that's similar to what we were talking about where you break it apart. You are not saying that, I think there is a belief that you have to reinvent the wheel because there's something wrong with the wheel and there's just not make a better wheel. Don't evolve the wheel. Don't ignore the wheel completely and try to make a new wheel. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, no one should look at the wheel and say, I want to make this better and then start designing triangular wheels or square wheels or trapezoidal wheels. Like the problem with the wheel isn't that it's round or that it has spokes or that it's attached to the axle. Those are all things that are right with the wheel. That's kind of what I mean when I mean, when I'm talking about working within the genre and not trying to break it too hard. There are times and places for ladder matches. There's a reason Kenny Omega finished his series with Okada or, you know, had the blow off of this part of the series with Okada in a two out of three falls match. It's because that is one of the most classic ways to tell a wrestling story. Absolutely. It's supposed to be, you know, something that is decisive. Yeah. Definitive. And, and that's the same way with a lot of this stuff. The, the things that transcend, the things that work are the things that both rely on tropes and don't exist entirely within the context of those tropes. What is a good mystery show or uh, let's say novel for you, I'll probably say a show uh, for people who are wrestling fans to read that they will or just a great what it is, in your opinion, like the, the best example of the genre, if not necessarily the best mystery novel. Wow, that's a really big one. Um, I guess if, if, you, if you want something that really kind of speaks to the heart of what I think people love about mystery novels really being taken on a journey and having both that whodunit narrative and, you know, those deep dives into the lives and the emotions and the motivations of the characters. Uh, a novel I really recommend is called Death in the Clouds by Agatha Christie. It is an Hercule Poirot novel, and it's a locked room mystery, as they say, uh, that takes place on an airplane going between uh, England and France. 
so it's a series of kind of uh, or a group of English expats who are uh, in uh, France for uh, Wimbledon, I believe, or not so for not for Wimbledon for the French Open rather. They're there to watch Fred Perry in the in the in the French Open. But uh, but it, it's a really great story. Uh, one of them winds up getting murdered, and it, it just in, it involves you know a lot of the characters. Uh, drawing, becoming very close to each other throughout the course of the investigation. And, and some of that turns out for the best and some of it, uh, it does not, so to speak. But Death in the Clouds by Agatha Christie, I think is a, it, got, it dives deep on all the characters and it's also got that great kind of whodunit plot with one of the definitive detectives of the genre, Hercule Poirot himself. Mine is, as I said, it's going to be a televised detective show. This is probably my single favorite episode of a detective show, period. It is an episode of a show called Numbers, which is one of those, it kind of has a Sherlock Holmes feel to it. It's about a genius mathematician named Charlie Epps and his brother, who's an FBI agent. They solve mysteries together. And the hundredth episode of the show is an episode called Disturbed. And I don't want to ruin anything, but it it does a really good job of transcending the genre not through breaking the the formula you are made uncomfortable watching the episode in a way that i feel like doesn't really happen in most uh detective television shows there's there's very much a lack of fear that something bad is going to happen to anybody on the show and this is an episode that does a really good job of making you feel as though they're actual stakes and i think the heel in the episode does as good a job as you possibly can especially given the amount of time they actually have on the episode that resonates with you throughout the entire like you you don't stop thinking about the episode in a way that you don't stop thinking about the time you see a really great wrestling character like it really he is the 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 murderer on the show is a great heel as good a heel as i can ever remember he's not over the top he's just psychotic in a way that's really controlled and that's really frightening it's a very realistic damaged person who's doing these things and i i just love it it's it's the episode i show to people when i'm just like do you like detective fiction here's a really great episode of a television show you don't have to watch the rest of the show just that one episode that sounds really fascinating i i will definitely check that out based on your recommendation your synopsis almost reminds me of like the same vibe like the movie like seven with like brad Pitt kind yes. of evokes where that like yeah where it's like everybody is in real danger like including the you know the detective characters and stuff so that that sounds really intriguing that's great if you watch the entire series it's since it's the 100th episode they bring up a bunch of stuff that happened earlier but you don't have to have watched because that's the first episode i watched of the show that really caught me and made me go all the way back through i'd watched like a couple of episodes before it so yeah it, it, it really it both plays with the show itself and the genre without doing so in a way that tries to not even reinvent the wheel or speak to it in the way that say uh, Columbo or uh, murder. She wrote does. It's just a really well-constructed mystery on an hour long show. While, uh, while we're on the topic of recommendations, I'm, I'm going to be a little shameless here again. And I do want to say uh, that I am a mystery author myself. And if you enjoy such things, or if you just kind of, you know, dug the conversation we just have and want to see, you know, what I created in light of it. Um, I've, I've got two mystery stories that are currently available out there in publication. Uh, they were both printed in Mystery Weekly magazine. 
which you can find really easily on Amazon, uh, both in you know uh, paper and Kindle form, very uh, very affordable. Um, but specifically, I was in the April 2017 uh, edition. That was uh, my debut short story, my first ever uh, published work of fiction. And also I was in the October 2017 issue, which was a literary pastiche uh, that I cannot talk too much about before IP reasons. Uh, I was literally told by the publisher not to, so, so let that be a little bit of a mysterious hook for you. Uh, but it, it does involve characters that we talked about on this episode of the podcast. So that's in the October 2017 edition of uh, Mystery Weekly. And I, I've, got, uh, I've got a finished story that's currently being shopped. Uh, and once I have a landing place for it, I'll obviously tell all of you about it as well. Did you have anything else? Uh, did, did you write anything this week or should they just check you out on the on the Twitter box? Just check me out on the Twitter box at Dave Writes Junk. And if I do write anything anywhere or think up anything especially clever, you'll be the first people to know about it. You can check me out at The Nixter. That's T-H-E-N-1-C-K-S-T-E-R. And uh, as always, you can check us out at howwrestlingexplains.podbean.com. You can also download us on iTunes, the Google Play Store, or Stitcher. We actually, over the last week and a half or so, I have uh, uploaded all of our podcasts to basically every major podcast on top of the platform we already had. So uh, definitely check those out if you use those apps. And of course, uh, rate, review, and subscribe to us. Uh, Five star, four star. I know Dave doesn't like seven star, but I'm willing to take three star, uh, though you will break my heart if you do a two star. Uh, (laughs) Do you have anything else you wanted to add? Well, I guess there's a, there is one thing that I that I wanted to throw out there, and that it's that's that uh, I, I've been doing a lot of soul searching this week, a lot of a lot of journaling, and um, I, I guess that I, I have some regrets about the hard sell that I did last week for uh, Patreon.com/slash/hwetw, and uh, I just I just wanted to let everybody know that after a lot of thinking, you know, I decided not to do anything like that again. But then I realized that this is a constantly growing show and that, you know, there's, there's new people jumping on the train every single week. And there's a chance that somewhere out there, there's someone who's, who's hearing us for the very first time. There might be, you know, a a beautiful, innocent little 10 year old child who just for the very first time downloaded how wrestling explains the world. Maybe Maybe, maybe she's someone, she's a, she's a hardworking little, you know, fifth grader, sixth grader. She does her chores every single week. She does the laundry. She picks up for her parents. She mows the lawn. And maybe, maybe every week, maybe she has an allowance of, let's say, like five to $10 per week. And let's say, let's say that she's, she's a very, very prepared, very organized, you know, build a house of bricks type young lady and, you know, she's going out there and uh, she's she's not just buying candy. She's putting money away for college and she's not just buying toys for herself. She's buying toys for the less fortunate. I mean, that's the kind of person I really like to think is listening to this show, you know. And then, like, let's say that, you know, after maybe she's bought herself some snacks, she's, she's done some good deeds for the people of the world. Maybe at the end of the month, maybe at the end of the month, even after she's put some away for college, Maybe at the end of the month, she has just one or two dollars left, you know, just spare money that, 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 that's in the discretional income box. And, 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 and this, this little new listener, she wants to feel like she's really doing something, like she's a, 
like she's a patron of the arts, like she's like she's promoting higher thought and a, a real dialogue about about something that other people just just don't understand. That's something that's so part of her identity that she needs to listen to podcasts about it. So if you're someone like that, if you're a innocent little build a house of bricks middle school girl with one or two dollars left at the end of the month, or if you're just a normal person out there who's inspired by the thought of such a person existing, then maybe you could find it in your heart to go to patreon.com slash H-W-E-T-W, as in how wrestling explains the world, and pledge just one to two dollars per month. That would go so far to keep this show alive, to keep us hosted, to keep us out there for you. And we've also got perks for you. Things like early releases, things like show notes, and gosh knows what other perks might come in the future for just one or two dollars a month. So keep that little child in your mind and your soul. And if you've got one to two dollars in your hand as well, well, then you should probably give it to us. So patreon.com slash H-W-E-T-W. Thank you very much. I like the, the idea that you hope our fans are budget conscious. I don't want anybody to be giving us their last one or two dollars. I'm just saying, you know, I want people out there to take care of themselves, take care of theirs, you know, feed the homeless, feed the sick, buy the medicine for grandma. And then if maybe you have a couple of coins left at the end of the calendar month, maybe you could just drop them in our little box. I mean, it's like, you know, it's, it's in uh it's like in the Bible, right? Jesus said that you should, you can give what you can, you know, even, even when the old lady dropped two pennies in the box, the disciples were cynical about it, but Jesus said, no, 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 there's no such thing as a donation that's too small as long as you're given what you can. That'll be, that'll be on Jeopardy next week. How is How Wrestling Explains the World uh, like Jesus Christ? The usual, Lieutenant? No, I don't know what I want, but I don't want the usual. I feel like eating, huh? Yeah, I can understand that. Neither do I. I've had this head cold for the last three days, and it's killing me. You got a cold? No, I was at the dentist, and the Novocaine is wearing off. I, I think I bit my cheek. I can feel something there, and the tooth is starting to hurt, and I don't feel like eating, but I'm hungry. One little advice, Lieutenant. Go home, take a good shot of whiskey, and get right into bed. Oh, boy. Thank you. Lieutenant? <laughs> that was the happiest phone call I've ever received. I can't tell you how grateful I am. And so is my son. I, I can't thank you enough, Lieutenant. I am so relieved about Lydia. I, I... Well, the best way that you could thank me is Excuse if you me, could sir. help me. Is, is there something wrong with your no, mouth? No, that's a dentist. I know it came The best way you could thank me is if you could shed some light on how this could have happened. I know that Mr. Evans was in your office building at 12.30 on the day he died from a parking stub. I know he had an appointment to fill his cavity. And I don't care what Wesley says. I believe that Evans was in Wesley's office at lunchtime. And that's when it happened. If that's when he was poisoned, that's when he would have died. There's no way around that. Well, that's our problem. Excuse me. Friends? May I have a glass of water, please? I have to take my pain pill. Because it's starting to act up on me now. Be careful of this ice on your tooth there, Lieutenant. Uh, what do you have? Hey, I recommend... Pass you! Oh, bless you. Bless you got to take something for that. Oh, that sounds awful. All right. I tried everything. 
I was in a market the other day, and I saw these things. You know, all different colors. It's like candy. Probably a marketing gimmick, right? No, no, that's no gimmick. Each one of those colors, they have a purpose. See the beads here in the capsule? Well, the red ones, they dissolve in one minute. The yellows in 15, the greens in an hour, the blues in four hours, whites in eight hours, and so on. Well, you've seen the commercial, 12-hour cold pills. Yeah, no kidding. I didn't know that. Yeah, they're very common. Yeah. In fact, these pills here that your dentist recommended, they're the same thing. That's how he did it. What's that? He coded it. He coated the digitalis with a medical time-release gel and inserted it in a cavity. Here among the poor, sad, despicable, oppressive, misinformed, but we offer you to bite your tongue secure in the promise that you're right in every one.